Good morning. Thank you for continuing to stand for the reading of the word. Reading today from Hebrews 4, 9 through 11. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Thanks for coming this morning. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Peoria. I need to make you aware of two things really quickly before we pray and jump into Hebrews chapter 4. The first is this. We announced this last week, but if you weren't here, we have been displaced Once again, from Centennial High School over the holidays. So, do not come here next week on Sunday, the 23rd. We will be at our second home, which is the elementary school just up the road, Paseo Verde Elementary School. We'll have our normal times, 9 o'clock, 1045 service. We will also be there the following week on December 30th at our 9 o'clock and our 1045. And we did get the green light to be able to have Christmas Eve service there at the elementary school. So, we'll be doing what we had planned, a 3.30 service and a 5 o'clock service on December 24th. Um, The 3.30, for those of you that have little ones, that is the only time we are offering Redemption Kids, and it's birth to five years old. So this was one of the Sundays that we, or not Sundays, but services that we have a family. We bring everybody in, and it's actually coming together quite nice. It's going to be nice and intimate, and we're excited um, to be able to do that. So if you want to join us as part of our community on the 24th, we'd love to have you 3.30 and 5 p.m. December 24th. And then we will be back in this room, sitting in these seats on Sunday, um, the new year, 2019. That's crazy. Um, The 6th, I believe, is the next time we'll be coming the following Sunday. So I want to make you aware of that. The second thing is we are in Advent season, and every year we make it a point to give to an organization outside of us that blesses the city with an Advent offering. And so this year, Sean talked about it a couple weeks ago. Let me just remind you, we are partnering with an organization called Immigrant Hope. I went to a lunch a couple weeks back to hear more about this organization and what they do and how we're going to partner with them. So just to let you guys know, I'm really excited about this partnership because if you've had any conversation with our state specifically and the immigration issues and following Jesus, there's a tension to loving your neighbor and caring for the poor, and caring for the immigrant, as the Bible commands us to do, and attention of obeying the laws of the land, right? There's a tension there. And immigrant hope fits into this tension. And so what the organization does is they look at the people around them that God has brought them, and they help them legally take the steps to walk through what it could look like to be a citizen in our country. Um, because it's massively confusing to take those steps. So that's what immigrant hope does. But in the midst of doing that... They partner with a church as they're building relationships with those people. They're sharing the gospel with them, and they're connecting them to a community of people that love Jesus. So it's a really, really cool organization. I just want to let you guys know that's what we're going to be giving to for our Advent offering. And if you have gifts you want to give towards the end of the year, you can um, either write uh, Advent offering on your check. If you give that way, if you give online, there's a specific drop-down menu for Advent offering. That's where that money goes to. And if you have more questions about the organization, you can go to their website, immigranthope.org, and learn all about it, or you can come grab me and ask me questions on that, okay? Let's pray this morning for God to meet us in our text. Bow your heads with me. Father, thanks for your goodness to us in the midst of this season of waiting. 
and remembering your arrival, I pray that you would show up uh, this morning to speak to our hearts, to our minds, illuminate the text to us, God, of what it means to rest in you and what it means to believe in you. We love you. We trust you. We need your spirit to invade us this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we are in our season of Advent, and if you didn't grow up at a church calendar understand what Advent is, let me just give a quick, brief explanation for some context for us. Advent literally means the arrival of something you've been expecting. The arrival of something you've been expecting. And so I want you to imagine that you have a grandpa, and man, you love your grandpa. He's like your favorite person in the whole world. When you're around him, you just, you, you know those people where you're around and you feel like you're a better human when you're around those people? My wife is one of those people for me. Imagine this is your grandpa. He brings you life and joy and hope, and, but you don't live in the same state as your grandpa. You find out your grandpa calls you and he says, I'm going to come into town for Christmas. And so you're so excited and you go to pick him up at the airport and you go to the cell phone parking lot and you're waiting. You have all this flight information and you're looking at the board and you've got his flight information and it says on time, on time, on time. And you can't wait to see your grandpa. You're so on time, delayed, delayed. And, and, and you just can't. And finally, you're, you're waiting for those words to, to show up on the screen, arrive. And you pull up to the curb and you embrace him and you're so excited for him to be with you. That's the season we're in in Advent of this expectant waiting for a Messiah that will bring us joy and hope and peace. And the expectation in which we wait determines the value of what we're waiting for. The expectation in which we wait determines the value of what we are waiting for, but the problem with our culture is wait, waiting and resting is like, is like a bad word. When was the last time you had to wait for anything? So we've lost the discipline of what it means to rest and to wait. And both resting and waiting are key components of following Jesus and his kingdom. And so we need to be reminded every season, every year of what we are waiting and what we are hoping for is Jesus. Because you wouldn't pull up to the airport, you wouldn't pick up some random person. You wouldn't pull up to the airport and and pick up a person that's old and say, well, they look like my grandpa, they'll just come into my car. But often we're putting our trust and our weight in things that won't satisfy us, especially in the Christmas season. So we need to be reminded constantly of what we're waiting for. And that's what Advent season is about. And we've been using the book of Hebrews as a a backdrop to look at what God's people were waiting for in the arrival of the Messiah and how that would change everything for them. And the writer of Hebrews is making the argument that Jesus is that Messiah and that believing in him does change everything. So if you don't already have your Bible open, please open it to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews is, um, it's an interesting book to read. It's in your New Testament. It's this letter. And um, the author automatically assumes of its readers that they understand historically and culturally what's going on in the context. And that they really understand the Old Testament, really the first five books of the Bible. There's just a common knowledge that they would know these stories. They're not explanation of them. And so it's really hard for us a lot of times to read the book of Hebrews and make sense of it. 
because we don't know our Old Testament stories. We're not familiar with them. And so we need to understand the culture to make sense of what the Lord wants to tell us this morning. And at the end of chapter 10 in Hebrews, we see that this community, these people that are Jewish in nature and culture, but have followed Jesus, begin to follow Jesus. We see in chapter 10 that there's a community that they're, they're facing persecution and imprisonment because of them following Jesus. And because of that, some of the people in the community were falling away and not believing. That gives us the backdrop for what the author is trying to communicate in the book of Hebrews. And it's really two things, two goals that this author is trying to communicate. First, he wants to elevate Jesus as superior to anyone or anything else in order to show that Jesus is worthy of total trust and dependence. That's the first thing the author is trying to do. The second thing the author is trying to do is he's offering a challenge or a warning to these believers in Jesus to remain faithful despite their persecution. And the different warnings are scattered throughout the letter. They're they're meant to make the reader feel kind of uncomfortable. And they're not meant to scare the follower of Jesus, but what they're meant to do is almost act like like a smelling salt to wake us up to the fact if we start drifting away or if we outright disobey following Jesus, there's a warning there. And last week, Juan walked us through the beginning of chapter 3 in Hebrews, where we saw the author comparing Moses to Jesus. That God's people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, they were in bondage in Egypt, and they're crying out to God for a rescue. And God looks at them, he has compassion on them, and he moves in mercy as he sends Moses to rescue them out of Egypt. The author uses that comparison of Moses pointing to a better rescuer. Somebody that won't just rescue us out of our physical slavery, but will rescue us out of the slavery spiritually of our hearts because of sin. And that rescuer is Jesus. So what the author does for the rest of the story of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, where we're going to sit this morning, is he retells a story for a warning, a wake-up call for the Israelites, how they rebelled against Moses in the wilderness, and they lost their chance to enter the promised land, which was their rest. So let's look. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11 says this. So then... There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Here's what I want to do with these three verses this morning. The first thing is I want us to understand and educate ourselves on the culture that Israel was rescued out of. I think that's massively important, and I'll tell you why in a minute. The second thing, as they're rescued out, God institutes this thing called Sabbath, which is rest. Let's unpack that. And then let's look at the people's disbelief in that rest and how their belief in the rest are directly connected. And then the last thing, if the offer is still on the table for us today, as the text says, like how, how do we strive to enter that rest? So that's where we're going to go. Let's look. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. So then, let's stop there. 
Let's get some context for what the so then is about. Because what you see here is this author, again, retelling the story of the people getting saved out of slavery in Egypt. So for us to understand, we have to understand what was the culture like in Egypt that these Israelites were saved from. Mike Goheen, who's a seminary professor and an author, says that when the Bible talks about sin in the Old Testament, the primary metaphor is idolatry. So we have to understand, what are the idols, what are the undercurrents of idolatry in Egypt that these people get saved out of? And when you think about Egypt, there was a pharaoh that was almost viewed like a god. He viewed himself as a god, and everybody else viewed him as a god, and he desired glory. He desired power, and to get that glory and to get that power, what would happen is the technology of day were bricks, and they would build statues, and they would build pyramids, and they would build buildings to show, look how great I am, look how amazing I am, I should get the glory. That's what Pharaoh was doing. He was using God's people, the Israelites, as his labor to build these things, and it was an ongoing, constant, bigger, better, more, 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 more. Is an undercurrent of an idolatry of productivity, producing more all the time, all the time, all the time, so that Pharaoh could get glory. And the Israelites weren't there just for a little bit. They were there for 400 years in slavery. So again, think about how it's been conditioned for them to think and act over time that this is the culture they live in, that they have to produce more, produce more, produce more all the time. And we see it in our story in Exodus chapter 5 as God calls Moses to go rescue his people and he sends his brother Aaron to meet up with Moses and they go to Pharaoh and look at what they say in Exodus chapter 5 verses 1 through 5. It says, afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I shall obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. And then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Verse four. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. Verse 5, and Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens? If you continue on with the story, you see that he piles more work onto them, more bricks. They have to meet these quotas, and they have to provide the straw. It's this ongoing, you're going to take the people away from their work? If you take the people away from their work, then we're not going to create bricks. We're not going to create statues, and I'm not going to be glorified. You cannot take these people away from their work. There's an idle productivity producing all the time. Go, go, go. Again, the Hebrews have been indoctrinated into this culture. They've been there for 400 years, and they start to believe that their worth, as Pharaoh would believe, is directly connected to what they can produce. 
Their worth is directly connected to what they can produce. And why this is so important to understand the culture of this context of idolatry that they're getting rescued out of is because God did not set us up that way. We're not meant to be machines. We're meant to be humans. And so this is going against this 400 years of indoctrinating this slavery of production is going against human flourishing, what it means to be a human at a basic level. And as he calls them out of slavery, God knows it's going to be uncomfortable for his people. Stop. Stop producing. Stop. That's not where your value is found. That's not where your worth is found. Stop, stop, stop. They're so conditioned that they're just going to want to go and go and go and go. And God says, stop. They're going to learn they're going to need to learn how to rest. And rest is interesting. It's, it's a learned activity. There was a recent study in the UK. They took over 10,000 kids and they studied them sociologically from age 3, 5, and 7. And what they did over that time was they mapped out their patterns of going to bed and resting. They found some really interesting things about that. And one of the things that they found was that children learn to rest the same way they learn to walk, to talk, and to run. And rest is a learned rhythm. It's especially going to be a learned rhythm out of the, out of the, Egypt, the Israelites come out of Egypt and they're hardwired to produce. Does the culture of Egypt sound like a culture you're familiar with? America has the exact same problem. Right? We're called to produce, to do more, to get bigger, to get better, faster, all the time. What can you produce? And at the time in Egypt, the technology was a brick that you were able to produce more. Well, the technology now even is your smartphone, right? And it's like adding fuel to the fire of this idolatry of production that we're connected all the time to our work. However you want to define production, whether it's defined by your work at your job and your vocation, whether production is defined by social media and how many likes you get, I need more, I need more, I need more all the time. We live in a culture that idolizes productivity. And research shows that 84% of us grab our phones before our feet even hit the ground in the morning that we're checking them before we get out of bed. That's the first thing we look at. Again, whether it's your email, whether it's social media, whether it's, it's the first thing you look at before you start your day, and it's the last thing you look at when you lay your head on the pillow. And it's forming us, shaping us. And there's all this research now about what smartphones are doing to us, even in the, the rise of anxiety and the rise of depression and suicide for teens with social media. We have to realize that it's forming and shaping us because we live in a culture of productivity. Andy Crouch has a great book, if you're interested in the subject, called The Tech Wise Family that I would highly recommend. And he talks about in their family, how do you navigate this as a Christian? What does this look like? Because you're not going to go Amish and just throw your cell phones out the window. Like they're, they're valuable tools, but how you manage the tool is 
is what he talks about in his book. And he has this phrase in his book. He says, our phones go to bed before we do, and we wake up before they do. We don't plug our phones in next to our nightstand. There's a special dock where we go, and, and you just need to be released from that because we're now tethered 24 hours, texts and emails and things that come at us, all, and we feel this need to respond. Well, why do we feel the need to respond right away all the time? Because our culture says that's your value, that's your worth. What you can produce equals your value and worth. And we need to cut that tie, that tether, to not feel like we have to look at our phones all the time to produce all the time. We're just like what the Israelites came out of. So that's the backdrop. And again, I think that's going to make sense for us in just a minute. I know that was a lot of unpacking culturally, but I think it's going to help us understand the rest of our text. So back to Hebrews 4, verse 9. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for God's people. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his So as the people are rescued, God rescues them out of this culture of idolatry coming to production. He institutes something called the Sabbath, this rest. Now, this word Sabbath is interesting in the Old Testament because we see it show up in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2 and verse 3. God creates everything in six days, and on the seventh day, he rests. And this word has it um, attached to it this meaning of um, ceasing and celebrating. That's what rest means, Sabbath rest. Ceasing your work, God looks at his work and says, it's complete, it is good. I don't need to do any more because it is beautiful and glorifying and it is done. I'm going to cease and I'm going to rest. God didn't stop and rest on the seventh day because he was tired. He didn't rest because he was bored. He said, it's done, it's beautiful, I'm going to rest and I'm going to celebrate. Cease and celebrate is what the Sabbath means. But then you continue on in the story of God's people in Genesis, and this word is nowhere to be found in the rest of Genesis. You don't see it show up. And you're thinking, that's kind of odd. You know the first time it shows up again in the story? It's Exodus 5, which we just read, where Pharaoh says, you're going to let them cease and celebrate and rest? No, 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 that doesn't make sense. An idolatrous culture of production, that doesn't work with us. This is the first time you see it show up again. And then you see it instituted as God pulls his people out. And he says, you've been so conditioned that your worth is determined on your production. I'm going to help you understand what it looks like to live as an actual human. So I'm going to give you these laws. I'm going to give you these lanes, these commandments to help you function. Because you've been 400 years functioning not as a human. So he institutes Sabbath, this rest, where you'll work six days and you rest on the seventh. And can you imagine how they must have felt at the beginning of that? Like, they're working, and even in in Exodus 35, now Moses brings all the people together and says, this is the rule, this is what I'm going to tell you, this is the Sabbath, because what's going to start to happen is they're going to start a building campaign. They're going to build the ark. They're going to build the tabernacle. And the next five chapters in Exodus until the end of the chapter, they are building. And God is saying, listen, you need to remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. You're not tethered to what you produce. And I can just imagine them going, man, day five, it's like this thing's coming together. Like this. Okay. Day six, they're like, oh, do you know how much we could get done if we finish this on day seven? We could get like the Lord would be honored. The Lord would be glorified. And God says, stop. 
I am not Pharaoh, this false God that needs your production for my glory. I speak it and it goes into existence. I don't need you to produce anything. I am the creator. You are the creation. Rest in me. But it's going to feel really uncomfortable for those people because they're like, why? I need to produce. I need to. Because they've been in an idolatrous culture and they've been a slave to that. So God commands them to rest to help them understand what it looks like to flourish as humans. And we see that in verse 10 as he rests from his works. And we're called to rest from our work. To cut the tie, to be untethered, to not feel like we have to produce all the time. Acts more like God than it does like our culture. So what do God's people do with this rest. They go back and forth in the story as they're wandering in the wilderness, following Moses and trying to get to this land that promises ultimate rest, the promised land that God has promised to them. And here's what happens. As we look at, if you look at your Bible, if you have it open, you see in Hebrews chapter 3, Leading up to where we are in chapter 4, there's this kind of back and forth dialogue, and you'll see quotations. Well, what the author of Hebrews does is he quotes Psalm 95 five times in this passage leading up to where we are in chapter 4. And Psalm 95 is this story of the people wandering and complaining, and specifically it points back to Numbers chapter 14 which is the part of the story where they're, they're moving as a group and they're right to the edge of the promised land. The land that God has provided for them. They've been wandering 40 years and they're moving into this land. And so God says to do this in Numbers 13. He says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to send a scout team. And I want you to go look at the land. I want you to get excited about what you're about to enter into. So the people go and they go look at the land and they only look with a horizontal plane. They're not thinking of God. They're only looking at what's right in front of them and their circumstances. And say, there's people in here. Like we're... We can't overcome these people. They're bigger than us. And they go back to report. And there's only two men in that camp that say, Joshua and Caleb, says, no, we can do it. God's provided for us. Let's trust him by faith. He has given us this land. We just need to move into it. But everybody else looks at only their circumstances and go, that's, that's impossible. We can't do it. And so they report back to The people, and this is what it says in Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Watch this. It says, And then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept all nights. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. What was keeping God's people from entering the rest? the promised land. If you look at your Bibles in Hebrews chapter 3, if you flip back there, verse 19, the last verse of the chapter, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And men and women, how many times in your life have you looked at the circumstances of your life and you said, I can't move forward. Following Jesus means to love 
that person you don't even like being around. It means to forgive that person you feel like has betrayed you. Following Jesus means you leave your comfort so that you can give to somebody that's uncomfortable. Following Jesus means that you hold the most precious thing you can think of openly with your hands. Look at what, it's so interesting to me, the people in Numbers 14. What are two things they talk about? They talk about their wives, and what do they talk about? They talk about their kids. Have you ever looked horizontally, looked at your circumstances, and you say, I I don't know if I can trust you with my kids, Lord. I love them so deeply, and for me to release them to you is really, really, really hard. And so we do what these people do. We get together and we say, you know what? Like, we get together in our heart and we say, I don't think I can follow Jesus. I'm going to pick another person to follow. I'm going to pick something else to follow. And so you start following comfort. You start following control. You start following these things that seem to be easier than the thing that Jesus is calling you to do. And we're exhausted. We don't have rest. Because of our unbelief and the truth and the beauty of the gospel. And the warning that the author of Hebrews is giving us here, it's a clear warning for us. That if we rest, if we trust, if we rest in anything other than Christ, we won't have rest at all. What are you resting in? especially in the midst of the circumstances that God is putting you in front of. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Verse 11, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So if rest is directly connected to belief. What does it look like for us to develop a rhythm so that we believe the truth of the gospel daily? We don't end up like the nation of Israel and the people that don't believe and don't fall into rest. I want to tell a story as we kind of wind down. I, I hope it will be helpful for you as my personal journey of this area in the last year and a half, two years. Um, so that uh, we can develop a rhythm of rest, of believing the truths of the gospel. So my wife and I were on staff with a ministry called Athletes in Action for 16 years, where we discipled um, college and professional athletes. And God called us into that ministry. Out of We came out of college, and um, it was scary, but we felt like, okay, we're going to obey. We feel clearly like the Lord is pushing us in this direction, and it was so good. Um, The Lord did so much in us, so much in the people we had the opportunity to work for. We loved what we were doing, felt like we were headed in the right direction. I felt like God was using the way I was wired and the gifting that he's given me to glorify him in our work. And we were excited. We thought we were going to do it forever. And then God intervened and changed course um, and called us off of staff with Athletes in Action onto staff with this church called Redemption Church, Peoria. And it didn't make any sense on paper. As we looked horizontally, this is like, this doesn't make any sense to do this. 
for multiple reasons. But we felt like as we prayed and as we talked with each other and as we got counsel and we read the word, we felt like, okay, no, the Lord is calling us to. It seems to be clear he's telling us to take a step of faith and obedience. So that was about a year ago, a little over a year ago. My first week or so um, in this role, I reached out to a buddy of mine who's a pastor that I've been really good friends with for a long time. And he's been a pastor here in Phoenix for years. And we sat down and we just talked about what the differences were going to look like and, you know, what I need to be aware of and things like that. It was really helpful. I was really appreciative. He took the time to be with me. And one of the things he told me um, in the midst of our conversations, we talked about believing what is true of you in the gospel. And so he began this exercise that he does every day where he has 10 statements that are true of him because of the cross that he reads to himself every day out loud before he goes and spends time with Jesus and starts his day and does his, his job. I thought, man, that's, that's actually really helpful. I'm going to take some of that. So I went back and prayed through it, and I got seven. I think that's a more biblical number than 10. I got seven things. And I wrote these things out, and I put scripture behind them, and they hang um, right next to my mirror in my closet so that when I get dressed, I'm putting on the gospel daily. These are things I try to read to myself every single day because I get dressed every day, thankfully. I want to share five of the seven with you this morning and hope it will bring life to your soul of what it looks like to believe in the gospel to give us rest, to rest in the truth of the good news. The first one is this. God is on the throne. It's based on Psalm 47 and Psalm 46. God reigns over the nation. God sits on his holy throne. Be still and know that I am God. I have to remember daily that God is on the throne. That in the midst of my circumstances, in the midst of what's happening around me that doesn't seem to make sense, in the midst of the world and the brokenness, God still sits sovereignly on his throne. He's orchestrating everything. Because what I want to do is I want to try and jump into that throne. I want to control my own life. And I have to realize God's on the throne. Would you just rest? Would you just rest in that? God is on the throne. Number two, because of Christ's finished work on the cross, I have nothing to prove and no one to impress. I love this scene as Jesus gets baptized, Mark chapter 1. And what we know about this scene is that Jesus has not done any public ministry up to this point. And so he has not done anything to prove himself as the Messiah. He has not done anything to impress people to follow him. And what does the father say? He says, I am well pleased with you. Not because of what you do, but because of who you are. Because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, I don't have anything to prove. I don't have anyone to impress. That is really hard after being in a job for 16 years and being a leader for 16 years, coming into a new environment. Well, nobody knows me. And you know what I want to do? I want to impress people. I want people to see how good I am. Like, I, I want to prove myself. I want to prove that I belong here. I have to read that every morning. 
If I have to prove myself, if I have to impress myself, there's a chain that is tied to that approval, and the gospel has cut that chain. I don't have to live that way. There's beautiful freedom in that. Because the gospel is true, the finished work on the cross, I don't have anything to prove. I don't have anyone to impress. Number three, repentance and rest is where I will find my rescue. Isaiah 30 Verse 15, in repentance and rest, you shall be saved, and quietness and trust shall be your strength. Listen, y'all, my, my strength is not in my flesh is not found in rest and repentance. It's found in doing things, making things happen. And this statement of truth helps me understand, listen, repentance, being fully vulnerable and bare and honest with my sin and with God and other people and rest stopping the production is where I'm actually going to find my rescue. And so I started taking these rhythms of Sabbath actually really really seriously, where on Friday, like, I, I don't, I'm not on my computer at all. I'm barely on my phone unless there's an emergency. I sit with Jesus, and I pray, read my Bible. I cease, and I celebrate. I take a nap on Friday. That's really hard for me to do. And let me tell you, it has been so good for my soul, especially coming into this job. And there's plenty to do. The list never ends I don't have to be tied to the list. I don't have to be tethered to that list. I can rest in that truth. Number four, the Lord will fight my battles for me. Exodus 14, 14, as the people are um, getting leaving Egypt, and now the Pharaoh's like, well, we can't let them leave, and they're chasing after them. Their chariots are coming, and they see the people coming, and they're thinking, we're going to die here. Moses, what did you do leading us out of here? And they start grumbling and complaining, and Moses says this to them, Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you. All you have to do, be silent. I need to hear that truth every morning, men and women, because my natural proclivity, when I get into a battle is to fight. And we're going to sing a song here in a minute. And this song, this line, it wrecks me every time we sing it. Lord, I need you. The line is my one defense, my righteousness. I feel so convicted because if I'm honest with myself, is Jesus really my one defense and my righteousness? No, I'm my defense. I have a whole list of things that defend me and a whole list of things that make me right. And I need to rest in the truth that God will fight my battle for me. I don't need to defend myself. The last one, number five. Jesus desires for me to come to him. Love this. Isaiah 55, listen to this. Let it soak into your soul. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which is not satisfied? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me and hear so your soul may live. If I'm honest, because of the culture I grew up in, the idol of productivity and my own sin, 
I don't feel like Jesus wants me to come to him unless I'm bringing something to him. And that's not true. He desires relationship with me. He desires relationship with you, not based on what you bring him just because of who you are because he loves you. He desires relationship with you so much that he sends his son to earth to make a way for you to understand and be with him. God, Emmanuel, God with us. And I can rest in that truth. He wants me to come to him. I need all those things, among many others, to believe the truth of the gospel. And we're going to respond corporately here. And some of the reason we do what we do every week here, we sing songs, we give, we pray, and we take, we take the Lord's Supper. Every week we're doing rhythms to help us rest in Christ. To believe the truth as we sing it back to him. As we give and we say, we're not resting in our bank account. We're resting in you. Here is our offering. We're praying to him and being honest and vulnerable. And then we're doing the ultimate thing of taking communion. The ultimate reminder of rest. As Jesus says, are you tired? Are you burdensome? In Matthew 11, come to me. Come to me. I will give you rest. And we take the bread, his body that's broken for us. And we take uh, and we dip it in the wine or the juice, his blood shed for us. And saying, you don't have to be an idol of productivity. You can rest in me. That is why we take communion every week, to be reminded of that truth. I'm going to light this third candle, which represents peace in Advent, that the arrival of the Messiah brings us peace. It's going to get here in a minute, I promise you. And now I can just see, I can rest and not feeling uncomfortable that (laughs) this isn't working. Um, But this candle produces peace for us. See, I think that's, okay, that one was left on. It's clear it doesn't work. Glad we're not losing the moment here. There we go. Praise Jesus. Um, That what this candle does for us is it represents peace. That if the Messiah never came, we wouldn't have peace. But we do in Jesus. And we can rest. We can have peace. And we can wait expectantly for him to return when there's going to be ultimate peace. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your goodness to us, for your love for us what it means to rest in you. Help us, Father, as we hear this warning from the author of Hebrews, not to have hardened hearts, but today that we can receive your rest. Whether we know your son or not, that the the invitation is for all of us to be reminded of the truth of what Jesus has done for us. And ultimately, what's going to happen at the end of the story when you come back and we have ultimate rest. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.